Each episode focuses on a concept that represents a fundamental issue in contemporary life, examining it through works of culture and philosophy. Hello, and welcome again to the Alia podcast. This is Brad Davis. And Peter Granitz. And this is the second episode in our four-part series about theory in the time of quarantine. And today, we will be focusing on accelerationism. Yes, we gave a bit of an overview of the concept in our previous episode, but uh, Brad, can you uh, kind of remind us and give us a bit of a, a summary of what accelerationism is? So accelerationism is a tough concept to pin down, as we will see. Uh, And so there's a lot of different people who have different interpretations on it, and that makes it difficult to understand. But the core concept truly is that it's coming from a perspective that capitalism, particularly in its current form, is fundamentally flawed but that the only way to move on past capitalism or have any reform of the system is to bring the system down by exacerbating the inherently destructive elements within it. So the class disparities that may result from capitalism, the extreme inequality, the destruction of the environment, any factor that you might consider a a flaw of capitalism, an accelerationist, would embrace and try to exacerbate for the sake of bringing an end to capitalism to transition as something that would be healthier uh, and more beneficial for society. Now, what should be accelerated and how and to what end are all things that vary quite dramatically, as, as we will see. But that that's the essence of it. Yeah, I think that pretty much captures it more or less. Basically, yeah, it's that um, capitalism is unsustainable and will collapse eventually as part of the underpinning of it. It really goes back to Marx was in a way the first uh, accelerationist with his idea that um, capitalism will eventually collapse and lead to a new form of society needing to be created. And that's where his idea of Marxism comes in. Accelerationism has less of a clear endpoint, more just that capitalism um yeah and and that i think also points to another difficulty in defining accelerationism that the term is very much a a new coinage and one thrown around a lot in the past decade or so but some of the underpinnings of it and, and the core concept has been around through various revolutionary movements, particularly communist-aligned uh, ones, but but also some from the from the far right. And so, where Marxism ends, where Stalinism ends, and uh, where accelerationism ends, it's unclear what all those differences are, uh, and where where accelerationism is its own entity. So we will try and explain that today. One way that we kind of want to come at this sort of start by talking about the more sort of heady theoretical underpinnings of what accelerationism is and where it comes from. Um, and to do that, we're going to be looking at this article written by um, this guy, Jonah Peretti, who is best known as one of the co-founders of BuzzFeed and Huffington Post, who is a student of Nick Land in the 90s. Um, Nick Land is kind of the 
uh, founder of accelerationism in its modern form, and the term was really first used to describe the. This article by Jonah Peretti, Jonah Peretti is called Capitalism and Schizophrenia, Contemporary Visual Culture and the Acceleration of Identity Formation Slash Dissolution. Um, it was published in 1996. Um, in it, he basically goes through the ideas that are foundational to accelerationism, even though it doesn't use the term and doesn't end up at a conclusion that is overtly accelerationist. I think that it's a very useful thing for getting us to um, the kind of central idea is this idea of schizophrenia um, which was first sort of popularized by Frederick Jameson building on the work of Lacan. Uh, Jameson was a, a cultural critic um, who became very popular for his formu formulations of postmodernism in the, the 80s I believe. Um, and Let's see, so he defined the schizophrenic experience as, quote, an experience of isolated, disconnected, discontinuous material signifiers which fail to link up into a coherent sequence. Um, basically that in modern life, we are sort of bombarded by information and images and ideas that we can't fully assimilate. So we, they only really exist while we're looking at them. Um, we don't have a very concrete sense of self or of permanence or of historicity um, because of this bombardment of signifiers. And I think it is both interesting and worth noting that uh, Jacques Lacan was first and foremost a, a psychoanalyst and um, was working in sort of speculative psychology in psychiatry in large part in response to Sigmund Freud uh, in trying to provide a somewhat alternate and refined account uh, of the human mind from uh, Freud's own and then this gets spun into uh, theories of, of life under capitalism and, and life in society stemming from what is very much a, a psychiatric consideration. Right. Um, so, interestingly, when Lacan uses the, the term schizophrenia, he was using it in a much more clinical sense than we will be using it here. Um, uh, what we're calling a schizophrenia doesn't really have anything to do with the, the mental illness, or nothing directly, arguably, to do with the mental illness as we understand it today. Um yeah, but for Lacan and Jameson and uh, Deleuze and Guattari, who we'll talk about in a minute, um, schizophrenia is a state of having an undeveloped ego, um, of never having uh, completed the ego formation process in in childhood in in the psychological sense, but uh, in any any moment in sort of the more general sense. Um, there's essential. There's there's no sense of self like we were talking about earlier, um, which which Lacan uh, specifically attaches to the the Oedipus complex. Um, which we probably don't need to get. Well, I, the fundamentals of the Oedipus complex is Freud's um, 
description of how we we come up with an identity of ourselves with uh, understanding ourselves as an individual and that is primarily uh, an unconscious process trying to discern the relationships between ourselves our fathers and our mothers and among that um, drama represented best by the plays the the Oedipus cycles of plays uh, Freud thinks we come to an understanding of who we are amidst those tensions, conflicts, and relationships. A and Lacan is coming up with this concept where, for whatever reason, that process of deciding and realizing who we are from our mother and father, that individualization never happens. We never develop the ego, the self, and that that is... Um, his schizophrenia right and then the theorists like frederick jameson and uh Deleuze and Guattari kind of build that out further and apply it to the experience of society as a whole um peretti in his article uh in describing the the schizophrenic as Deleuze and Guattari understand it which is building on um kind of parallel to the jameson understanding is that the schizophrenic quote will not be trapped by the power-laden and despotic webs of signifiers that saturate society and psychoanalytic practice so they can't be neatly slotted into um say the the oedipus drama for one but they also can't be neatly slotted into um a specific thing in society uh they can't be specifically described as a worker or a consumer or um a uh mother father child whatever they are all of these things and simultaneously none of them at the same time um and Deleuze and Guattari uh kind of refer to capitalism as schizophrenic because the capitalism system capitalist system itself doesn't adhere to any of the given codes and constantly readapts itself to any scenario which is why you could put capitalism in uh say modern north america um you could also put it in, uh, you know, a developing country somewhere, and it will still kind of have the same uh, overall effect. It will still look more or less the same because it doesn't rely on a specific code. It can recode itself. For the individuals living in capitalism, uh, we kind of look back to Lacan again at another one of his theories of the idea of the mirror stage. Brad, do you know much about the mirror stage? I don't. Could you tell me about it? Yeah, so this is uh, kind of the most foundational contribution, I think, that uh, Lacan really contributed to uh, both psychotherapy and sort of understandings of, of the self. Um, it's the idea that at a certain point in a child's development, they start to recognize themselves in a mirror. Um, so up until I think it's a few months old, a child that has no no identification outside of the child's body and the body of the mother. They are all in the world around them are also considered a unified whole. When the child looks in a mirror and sees itself for the first time and recognizes itself um, and says, "Oh shit, that's me," then that sense of wholeness and unity kind of breaks apart, um, and the child can no longer be fully identified with the mother um, or with anything other than the physical body and self that is the child. Um, and initially, this is sort of a sense of joy. The child sees itself in the mirror and is excited. Um, that's me. But then, not long afterward, the child realizes, no, that's not me. That's a reflection of me. That isn't me. Um, and has to sort of 
realizes that that hole doesn't exist anymore and that that needs to be sort of filled somehow and to uh sorry mixing metaphors that's whole w-h-o-l-e not whole h-o-l-e that needs to be filled but it's a lack that needs to be filled um <laughs> that somehow they need to make up that um that sense of wholeness again and so how does this mirror concept relate relate to us as in capitalism or as consumers where does that play out so every time that you see an image um anywhere in capitalist society generally this happens in advertisements or television shows or things like that um uh say you see a photo of a rock star uh, um in a magazine uh, and you go i want to be that and but you realize that the space between yourself and what's in that image. You realize that you are not that, but you want to be that. The lack that needs to be filled is between is what's missing between you and the rock star. And in capitalist society, that lack is promised to be filled by purchasing something, um, by being able to buy a product usually that will tell you, that will fill the hole in your identity that will then make you that person that you see in the image and so i think we all know rationally that when we buy something to try and fill that hole or unite our whole uh identity it never works out quite as well as we would hope D- does this have an effect where it keeps building on and, and spinning more out of control is, is there any sort of end to this or so Yes and no. Um, in sort of capitalism, in a, a standard form, you can, or in a, an older form, maybe you could see, say, the rock star and say, okay, I need to buy a leather jacket, I need to grow my hair out in whatever way, um, and I need to learn how to play guitar, and then I will become this person. And you have this one sort of track that you can kind of go down in a way to uh embody this imago which is the word they use the, the imago of um of an identity but in an imago being akin to an image an idealized uh, image maybe yeah yeah sort of a, a an image that one could project themselves onto and into and that one could sort of strive towards um but in late capitalism um okay there are so many of these imagos that we're presented with um you don't just see the rock star. You also see, say, um, an image of a cowboy somewhere, or you see um, uh, images of the perfect parent, or I don't know anything that you might see scrolling through, say, an Instagram feed. You know, any one of those can be a new imago, and every single one of them, to an extent, is just by seeing it um, in the system that we're under. You see the difference between yourself and what's in that image, and what you lack, um, and what. Uh, what you are not and what you could be. Um, so each time you look at a new image, you sort of temporarily adopt that identity and feel that lack. And then in our system, in the late capitalist system, you then shed that identity and move on to a new one each time you look at a new image. And I imagine that the schizophrenia really builds as I see image after image after image as I'm scrolling through Instagram all quarantine. Yes, um, exactly. That is um, 
sort of the central problem with late capitalism is that you can never be fully satisfied with yourself. You can never, not that one could ever do that in any other time, but we are constantly re-undergoing this uh, mirror stage type process where we're being presented with a new image that we cannot live up to um, and that we then need something new. So can you maybe give us some sort of example as to how this plays out? Is there any timeline in which these things become assumed in, into the into capital? How how does this actualize itself in our lives? So this process happens pretty much instantaneously every time we look at an image. Um, so I'm, I'm going to quote from the Peretti piece again here because I think it's uh, especially useful in kind of understanding this. Uh, he says that the increasingly rapid rate at which images are distributed and consumed in late capitalism necessitates a corresponding increase in the rate that individuals assume and shed identities. Because advertisements link identity with the need to purchase products, the acceleration of visual culture promotes the hyperconsumption associated with late capitalism. Um, since he was writing in the 90s, he used the example of MTV um, and of sort of the rapid-fire frenetic pace of the music videos and the commercials and the television shows that were on there at the time and just how just insane they were to anybody who wasn't like used to it it was like overwhelming and overstimulating and uh, insane and now that's sort of what everything is that's that's the internet for see i i'm not even sure uh if you can really pull up old school mtv anymore but i remember uh, elementary, middle school, being on uh, spring break, and thinking that that was the opposite opposite of frenetic. That that's what I would watch when there's absolutely <laughs> no other way to pass the time, and it's as slow as could be. I, I can only imagine um, how how amplified this effect is with uh, YouTube streaming, with with all the other crap we we see constantly. Right. So I. I you know, I was thinking about it earlier, just scrolling through a Twitter feed, you know, the number of different um, things that you're presented with, you're presented with jokes, you're presented with political analysis, with, um, you know, some religious things, if that's the circles you're in, you're presented with potentially pornography, you're, like, you have all these different things that you're just being bombarded with, um, within 20 seconds of each other. Um, and there's really no good way for your mind to sort of assimilate that. I don't know how you could assimilate the what sort of dialectic there is between scrolling from a Bible quote to pornographic images to a Trump press conference to whatever next. Yeah, that's uh, that's hard to reconcile. Right. Um, so building off of that, Peretti sort of looks at these three specific communities that he thinks have sort of found a way almost outside of that um the the late capitalist uh hyper consumption of identities that the sort of managed to kind of find an out from the schizophrenia in a way um i sort of see this as potential avenues that could be used by accelerationism in a way to uh sort of sidestep the capitalism um, the three groups he refers to are 80s and 90s queer activists, um, the image of the slacker, um, and pop art, like Andy Warhol type stuff. Uh, so first talking about the queer activists, he sees their, um, their, uh, 
stagings of, of protests and rallies and various things is uh, a blurring of the line between domains of art and, uh, and protest. Um, it, all of these things that he sees as sort of ways out resist easy identification as just one thing. Um, so, you know, having a, a demonstration, a die-in or something uh, to raise AIDS awareness uh, where a bunch of people gather in a public place and pretend to be, to be dead um, is both a protest and also a form of arts, um, which makes it impossible to fully project um, an identity onto, to project yourself into an identity of what this thing is, you know? You see someone doing that and you can't easily say this is art, this is politics, this is X, Y, or Z. Um, and so that sort of resists the, uh, the, uh, the schizophrenic adopting and shutting of, of identities. Um, but paradoxically, um, especially in the past decade, um, as gay rights have become more widely accepted, the capitalism has fully consumed these acts of protest into just uh, into money. They become they become capital, you know. Uh, now, gay pride parades are literally sponsored by banks. Um, there can be no more, uh, I think, overt uh, example of how the capitalist system adapts and recodes these things into an acceptable and purchasable. Uh, so the, the second identity that he talks about is that of the slacker, um, which I, I just love that he used that term because that wasn't really something that was used in pop culture um, or in media criticism really until uh, Richard Linklater's movie, which I think came out in 19... 19- Wonderful movie. If any any of you haven't seen it, it is one of my all-time favorites. Absolutely incredible. I, I hope we can talk about that more in a different episode because I think it's uh, just brilliant in so many ways. Um, but it's sort of the the aimless Gen Xer, the the person without any real direction in life, who sort of floats through um, without any real attachments. Um, so I'm going to use Peretti's words here. He says the quote: "These media savvy youth consume the accelerated visual culture of late capitalism, yet do not develop ego formations that result in consumer shopping." It is as if the light and sound from the television is sufficient to satiate their desire. Actual products become superfluous. The media itself is the final object of consumption. This refusal to consume diffuses the capitalist media's efforts to accelerate the process of identity formation slash dissolution into capital accumulation. Although hardly revolutionary, the slacker's refusal to identify may facilitate, quote, forms of community that are played out over and above the logic of commodity exchange. Um, so, does this still exist today? Do you, do you think the slacker is still a tenable position that one could be? Well, I would like to make reference to another, I, I think, quite good movie um, that I think more people have seen. And that's Clerks, uh, the first Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith, right? Yeah, Kevin Smith. Yeah. Ke- first Kevin Smith movie, which is an awesome, awesome, awesome black and white uh, movie that um, depicts a couple of slackers working at a convenience store as clerks and it's sort of a, a day in the life of one of these fellows and the couple of guys that hang out on the curb out front of the store who just sit there and, and smoke pot all day and kind of rap over uh, some beats then smoke some more pot on and on and on and um, it's a wonderful movie 
great independent production. And then he, Kevin Smith sold it to the Weinstein Company. Uh, they, they put it out and produced it. And then very quickly, the sequel was garbage commercial trash. The uh, aforementioned uh, stoners in the movie, one played by Kevin Smith, um, Jay and Silent Bob, got their own spinoffs, wherein they're superheroes in the Hollywood movie-making uh, industry or something, still smoking pot, but also like the any sort of you know radical or um, not not radical any sort of counterculture uh, aspect of that had just been uh, subsumed into a joke about them being potheads. Not not Ooh. actually. Ha- yeah. Have you seen Dogma? I haven't seen Dogma. <laughs> That's the one movie of his I, I haven't seen, I think. It is but, so um, absurd. The, a very original, artistic, thoughtful uh, portrayal of this lacquer life, and maybe some of the value of that, quickly became subsumed as a money-making venture in and of itself. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, within months, years, uh, maybe even shorter time period, very much i i think this identity disappeared and i i don't think it's very possible anymore right and i think even sort of similar you kind of see it in how uh you know a lot of 90s culture and a lot of 90s music culture was kind of built around the idea of not selling out of sticking it to the man of going independent of not being tied down by a major label that's really not a conversation you hear happening at all anymore in the in the music world it's you want money you don't want money for your art a great example of one of those bands was Green Day. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, great band, good music. From the get-go, there, there's some independent creative art there. And it didn't take long for, for money to override that. Um, yeah. And going back to the weed motif, uh, Cheech and Chong were initially funny, edgy comedy about outsiders. Harold and Kumar, same sort of thing. And all of these quickly 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 become subsumed into money-making series i uh i know i'll irritate a, a couple friends of mine i mean the grateful dead as well are as commercial of a band as could possibly be at this point you're telling me the john mayer grateful dead is a commercial construction what <laughs> and, and so you know as, as much as it'd be wonderful to hang on to the moment uh of the dead being really truly countercultural I, I don't know if it was them that sold out whether it was their audiences uh the, their fans finally got jobs that paid enough money for them to help with the selling out but it's just it's not possible right i mean i think that uh Peretti would probably argue that the the deadhead became an imago in and of itself it no longer was a slacker or someone outside of that it was a deadhead Right, you have you now have an identity to project onto. Um, there's now something that you can attach yourself to and say, "I want to become this. I want to embody this, and therefore I must buy all of these rare bootlegs to <laughs> become the best deadhead I can be." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, moving on, uh, we're kind of getting into the say the the following discussion a little bit too with this. Uh, the third group that uh, Peretti brings up is pop artists like Andy Warhol, um, with their 
proliferation of cultural images divorced from their context, which sort of neuters them. You know, you see um, a Campbell's soup can, but it's not trying to sell you Campbell's soup. You kind of don't really know what to do with that, and the market doesn't really know what to do with that, or I would argue didn't know what to do with that, but now has instead sold the product of the image of the Campbell's soup can as a product in and of itself. Um, I don't, I don't really buy that pop art is a full, um, really anything very different from the initial commercialism that it sort of comments on. Um, I think it's pastiche, but I don't think it is in any way removing itself or outside of the markets, which it critiques. Yeah, I, I have a hard time trying to separate if that's true at inception or not. I mean... I wasn't on the scene with Andy Warhol uh, and Keith Haring, but now you see Keith Haring uh, pieces plastered all over sweatshirts, uh, dorm room posters, uh, Andy Warhol t-shirts. I mean, so perhaps at its inception, it was a little revolutionary. The uh, Velvet Underground cover by Andy Warhol, that was edgy art for some period of time i i i i'm not qualified to judge how long but that is as commercial of an image as could be the the banana t-shirt everyone wears uh without any concept for for the velvet underground um and i don't know if this speaks in favor or against but uh you know the artist eric good who got his start with some shows uh art shows in new york uh, that were co-hosted by Andy Warhol and Keith Haring. Uh, he was the director of Tiger King. I, I'm not <laughs> sure if that's full acceptance of um, of capitalism or, or if Tiger King is actually the most schizophrenic um, revolution against capitalism. But that, that's where we're at right now. We're, there's no clear delineation or separation from what's inside the system or, or what's opposed to it. Which is sort of where accelerationism comes in, and I think where Peretti's founding of uh, media empires like BuzzFeed and Huffington Post really comes in. I think that um, that question of is this helping or hurting capitalism, is this is this inside or outside of the system, is really where accelerationism thrives. You know, um, It's going inside the system to end up outside the system. Something like Tiger King, um, you know, I I could go on for a long time about true crime, and I don't want to dive into it too much here, but I feel like that's sort of the apotheosis of both true crime and Netflix streaming spectacle, right? It's both um, purports to be a sort of untold story of a true, true thing that happened while also being maximum media spectacle. I could think of, uh, you were sort of joking about it being a, a subversion of, of capitalism, but I really think that um, more things like that create the exacerbate the schizophrenia of the culture in such a way that will eventually sort of tend toward the downfall. I think it's things exactly like that that um, that uh, Jonah Preddy and Nickeland and uh, the other people associated with accelerationism picture in a cultural sense. Um, yeah, uh, absolutely. Do we want to talk a little bit more about uh, BuzzFeed and acceleration in particular, yeah. or should we? Should we... Yeah. Um, 
BuzzFeed's such an interesting case. I, I've, on occasion, actually loved some of their journalism. They put out some really well-reported, interesting things. And I've also, on many, many occasions, loved taking uh, their quizzes that provide me with all sorts of imagos to, to live up to. What What's my dream vacation house? What's my uh, dream Ikea living room? Sponsored by Zillow. Sponsored by Ikea. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, they're entertaining as all hell. They're a good way to pass time. They're fun. They're kind of humorous. Um, but that's BuzzFeed. Yeah, it... Uh... It really is sort of this um, exacerbation of that blurred lines, right? Is this news or is this advertisement? Is this um, a fun quiz to pass the time or am I being sold something? And the answer is always yes to all of them. Even BuzzFeed's greatest reporting is still an advertisement for BuzzFeed. You know, um, yeah, all of it, all of it um, exacerbates the, the capitalistic tendencies of the media landscape um, and of just the consumer landscape at large. Um, and I, I like to think that uh, Jenna Peretti kind of got into this with uh, an accelerationist mindset, with understanding that what he's doing isn't um, an objective good or necessarily a societal good, but with the intention of pushing society further to uh, to the brink, pushing capitalism further than it has gone before, um, with the hope of kind of speeding up, speeding, speeding up and bringing about a, a, an end to it. BuzzFeed. The final nail in the coffin of capitalism. <laughs> if only, man. Uh, but you know, I think that now we should probably talk. But in that transition, that hmm? seems to be the site's goal. It, very much so. Like it, it is quite possible that the most revolutionary, radical politics around is BuzzFeed. And, and I, I want to, um, this I is going to take years of understanding and unpacking for me, I think. Uh, but perhaps the most influential Marxist magazine at the moment is Teen Vogue. They keep pushing out article after article explaining <laughs> Marxism, explaining um, leftist theory, and trying to unpack these concepts for readers not familiar or experienced with them. And I, I have no idea what, what, what that means when Teen Vogue is your, your biggest, is the biggest sponsor of Marxism. Yeah, there's a, a lot to unpack there. You know, it, it, but it really is just further that blurring of domains, you know, is this uh, a teen style magazine or is it a, um, uh, an accessible political journal, you know, is it, what am I being, am I being sold something here or am I not? You know, it's, it's really, it's unclear. Um, Fun fact, Teen Vogue did interview me about politics at one point in the beautiful. past. I'm sure if you search my name, you can find it somewhere in the archives. Incredible. I think that's as good of a point as I need to segue to uh, <laughs> the kind of the, the meat of what we're talking about here is acceleration to what end and how does this acceleration fit into sort of the, the quarantine landscape? Um, 
so an article uh, put out, I can't remember where I took this quote from, uh, it was either um, Vox or Wired, I think. Um, I don't remember. Uh, a website put out a thing about sort of the history of accelerationism as, uh, I think a couple years ago, um, kind of explaining the divergence of the two uh, major wings, in a way, of of accelerationism. They said, quote, one was left-wing and academic school Marxist thought focusing on how technology could be conscripted toward building a post-capitalist future. The other was right-wing and a major part of product of Land's mind. Um, that's Nick Land they're talking about. Um, I don't think that's a perfect encapsulation of these two sort of wings, if you want to call them that. Um, but it sort of gets the gist of it. Um, and that that was uh, an article by Zach Beauchamp in Vox, who who's I, I encourage he's written a number of interesting things uh, about left wing politics and accelerationism in particular for Vox. One of one of the few writers uh, they have that that I'm really really interested in what he has to say. Cool. Um, anyways, so the two main wings if we want to kind of call them that are sort of those as, as i see them at least this is it's by no means an authoritative or uh final accounting of them nor is it a clean divide between them but i see sort of nick land uh the, the figurehead of accelerationism um kind of aligned on one side with the neo-reactionary movement um and a sort of more technocratic form of of accelerationism a techno-futurist type of thing um, which sometimes associated with neo-Nazis, which we could talk, we'll talk about here in a minute. And I see the other side of it being something more like uh, Ted, Kaczy- Ted Kaczynski and environmental eco-anarchism um, and sort of a return to the land type of thing. Um, to get started, I think we should just sort of briefly touch on the neo-Nazi thing. Um, so... There is a, a faction of sort of the alt-right movement typically associated with the more radical end of it, the sort of neo-Nazi white supremacist end um, that calls itself accelerationist. Um, they're, basically, their idea is to accelerate the collapse of the current world order by sowing chaos through random acts of violence to show the insecurity uh, and precariousness of of the world and to break it down into ethno-nationalist technocratic states. Um, This makes no sense to me uh, for so many reasons. Uh, It completely eschews all the theoretical underpinnings that we talked about. It's basically just using the term accelerationism without actually accelerating anything or having any any meaning behind it. I I mean... Political terrorism is terrorism, whether it uses, regardless of uh, of uh, the term it uses. I mean, Al Qaeda is trying to accelerate uh, the end of the world into uh, into their their idea of Islamic governance. That, to me, doesn't make sense to use use accelerationism as a term of description for it. And maybe maybe there is uh some real links between um right-wing accelerationist thought and white supremacy that it is possible and wouldn't want to downplay that 
but uh, I I don't think the discussion of accelerationism itself should get too bogged down on that, or at least here I want to discuss its merits prima facie and theoretically prior prior to that sort of consequences of it. I agree. I think that my understanding is that the these uh, neo-Nazi accelerationists take the name specifically from Nick Land, and they're sort of inspired by um, the... They, they read a message that is can be pulled, interpreted and pulled out of Land's work and the work of uh, Curtis Yarvin, a.k.a. Mencius Moldbug, um, another noted proponent of accelerationism. Uh, they kind of take the more unsavory bits of some of their writings and ignore the rest of it. So they are, in a way, influenced by accelerationists, but I don't think by accelerationism. Yeah. If that but makes sense. It, it is is worth saying, uh, like, for instance, the uh, murderer in Christchurch, Australia, prior to committing atrocious acts, uh, did leave a manifesto uh, making reference to accelerationists and accelerationism. So there's some, there are some links there, but we we would like to move on past that for for the moment. Yeah. Uh... We could use that as sort of a springboard to kind of talk more about uh, Curtis Yarvin and his image of accelerationism and the version of it that he uh, he included in the version that he sort of uh, alludes to in a way in his uh, Plan A for the Coronavirus essay that was published earlier this month. Um, yeah. Uh, so in, in that essay, uh, Curtis goes on talking about how the only way that the United States can really deal with the problem of, of coronavirus and sufficiently quarantine and have all the resources necessary and develop a vaccine and accomplish everything we need to do to get society back on track is by creating a new institution that is supreme to the rest of the American government. Uh, the idea being that you find some sort of technocrat, some sort of Silicon Valley type CEO who's very capable of managing and you put him in a new agency that can direct all the others to, in, to the extent that it's related to coronavirus and tell the military where to send hospital beds, tell the Federal Reserve how to deal with interest rates and uh, be able to usurp the president uh, in terms of dealing with a single crisis so that we can try to move on with with certainly some uh, a great deal of uh, inspiration from the old Roman concept of uh, an emergency dictator right and the way that I read this uh, knowing uh, sort of Yarvin's other accelerationist ideas and his uh, technocratic tendencies um i read this as sort of him saying that if this were done this would be in a way a, a test run for the efficacy of uh corporate run government in a way uh so yarvin is very uh he's in favor of there basically being what he described at a small scale for dealing with coronavirus or smaller scale still a national scale um being sort of the way that the government as a whole is run uh peter teal uh the the tech investor is 
also, I think, aligned with that and has invested in Yarvin's um, Silicon Valley projects in the past, which I think is very interesting. Um, yeah, do you want to say a little bit more about that before we move on? Um, yeah, and right-wing accelerationism is broader uh, than just Yarvin. And there, there are people with uh, serious disagreements, particularly with this coronavirus piece, as to just how, how technocratic it is and whether or not that collapses back into sort of a neoliberal concept uh, of government, which is one that I think is worth mentioning, though not not explaining at length here. Um, I, I think there's some difficulty in nailing down what the what the ideal world uh, of Curtis Yarvin would be, whether it's more of a authoritarian state, a a total technocracy, what what it looks like is a little difficult, and uh, in comparison to to other uh, similar thinkers, there is a a wide degree of variation. Right. Um while we're talking about sort of the, the more technocratic aspects of accelerationism, um, Curtis Yarvin and Nick Land often uh, can collaborate in a way they're, they're very much on the same wavelength with a lot of this stuff. Um, Nick Land's future, um, his uh, ideal future is a little bit more clear than Yarvin's is, I think. Uh, Nick Land literally wants people to merge with computers to create a uh, techno-human, like a cyborgian super race. Um, he... he uh, sees sort of an uh, elite class of post-humans basically forming and creating uh, a new society out of the ashes of capitalism, um, which he sees these, uh, uh, these, these cyborgs as looking upon us humans in our current form as we do upon chimps. Um, he very much, he has a very clear image of his future uh, how exactly we get there is a little bit less queer. Um, but his, his version of the techno-utopia is a little bit different than a, a corporate state hybrid. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's helpful. Um, perhaps a, a, in a slug line, it is cyborg Nietzsche Ubermensch is kind of, yes. is kind of what this looks like. Um, which is an interesting um, and very strange concept. Yeah, um, and this I think is also where some of the, the neo-Nazis kind of sink their hooks into it a little bit um, because there is, it's a very short hop from here to, to eugenics. Um, yeah. I don't think a necessary one, but it doesn't take far to get to get from point A to point B, um, that's another thing. So, why don't you tell us a little bit more about uh, this eco-Marxist anarchism? Yeah, so this is what really excites me about uh, the accelerationist accelerationist ideal. Um, I am sort of retroactively affixing that title to uh, the. Uh, ooh, how do I? I don't know the best way to to uh, 
self-deprecatingly praise him. Uh, Ted Kaczynski, the, the Unabomber, uh, is sort of the what I see as the figurehead of this wing of the movement um, with his idea basically that capitalist society is bad. Um, we can see that in how we relate to our environments and how the natural environment itself um, is being destroyed. So we, we are alienated in the way that we sort of described above. Um, and the way to fix this is to uh, advance the capitalist system to the point of collapse and return to small state self-sufficient communes that are living in harmony with the environment that have a much smaller population than any uh, state we have right now that have a very small reach. Um, and we sort of see in a way where this could be could be pretty accurate um, with the, the COVID quarantines happening right now. Um, we see how wildlife is uh, returning to urban areas. You know, there's like the the goats in in, in Wales, I think, um, and and even and not the, the monkeys in Thailand. Even not just urban areas. The amount of wildlife uh, spread it in national parks. Yosemite's seeing a huge resurgence. Bears and wolves all over the parks. You're, you're really seeing wildlife. It feels almost immediately reclaiming what had always been theirs right and this, this is only over the course of what four weeks or so um we have unprecedented levels of air quality just because so many fewer people are traveling there's fewer planes in the air fewer people are dry there's no no discipline to work you know um we are really seeing uh what happens when we're gone you know it's a little bit of a a, a meme and a really dumb thing to say but in a way humans kind of are the virus you know there's we are uh really just destroying the natural world um and so a uh an eco-communist uh utopia kind of sounds like a good thing these days you know it doesn't sound too bad uh or at least we could see why someone like ted kaczynski would feel strong enough to you know uh bomb places for it um which again this is another another area where the the violence of of accelerationism kind of comes in uh that uh, Ted Kaczynski in particular thought that the sort of like the, the far right uh, neo-Nazi uh, accelerationists believe that uh, places need to be bombed and people need to die before people start to realize how serious the message is. Um, it's, it's a little bit less chaotic than the other form of violence is, but it's in a little bit more strategically targeted. But uh, the idea is to bring down a piece of infrastructure, you know, uh, communication uh, hubs, things like that, to show people just how precarious the situation they're currently living in is, and how it just needs to return to a more environmentally hospitable um, and environmentally codependent um, way of working. And it's, it's very much Marxist in its uh, ideas of returning to a more unalienated form of labor where, you know, if you're farming and making your own clothes, you could really feel the, the result of it, the impact of it very directly. And the question of violence is a difficult one, I, I think, in Marxist thought as well, uh, and the necessity of revolution and conflict. I think it is worth mentioning that to even get to the point we are right now, uh, as Peter was saying, in quarantine of resurgent nature, I mean, there has been a form of violence that has required 
that that has gotten us this far with without tens of thousands of deaths and possibly more there's no way you could have convinced people to stay in their their home uh for this long yeah i think it's a really good point um even if it's not uh active terroristic violence the uh loss of life that kind of is bringing us to the point where we're having this discussion is uh cannot be be ignored and, um, and maybe uh this will bring in the years to come more credence will be given to uh the greater uh climate change movement as we likely see enormous increases in death due to uh climate change be it from uh crop uh from uh failures to uh harvest crops be it from loss of land from flooding natural disasters that come with it perhaps nature is providing the the violent incentive uh to to accelerate for us right well i mean ted ted kaczynski thought it wasn't going fast enough was kind of his thing he really thought that by the time that nature kind of kicked us out of out of our ways of life um it would be to, there'd be nothing to kind of return to to build these communes off of um so i guess it sort of raises the question it can uh, disregarding the question of, of violence and loss of life associated with it, can even the idea of a small-scale, self-sufficient eco-commune um, as the only form of, of government that exists anywhere, uh, or even, yeah, uh, can that work out, or has are we sort of at a point where it's too late? You know, has our technological infrastructure built up so much that will we even be able to return to a sort of back-to-the-land type thing? Is that even a realistic thing to be discussing? I, I honestly have no idea. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. I, there, in a very real way, there you can't turn back the clock. Um, there's no return to the state of nature we were discussing the other day. Uh, we can't really unlearn what we've learned. Will we be willing to sacrifice marginal? conveniences for marginal improvements in nature i think that's likely but even that will be difficult i i it is worrisome and and, uh, should give one cause for pause but there is um i think a good argument accelerationists have that there needs to be some degree of social destruction before we are willing to actually change anything. What What about you? Maybe Maybe that wasn't exactly what you were asking, but no, that that's uh, that's pretty much it. Yeah, I I mean I agree with that. I agree with what you said. Um, I you know. Uh, personally, I do think that the the current capitalist system is one that is horribly destructive and really um, bad for the people that live in it. I think that uh, it, you know the, the sort of the joke: there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. What are you supposed to do if everything you do has a, a bad moral um, moral repercussion? You know, how do you how do you live in the society where you're constantly dissatisfied by everything that you're seeing around you, by every every single thing that's being projected at you is creating your further dissatisfaction? Um, you know, uh, the 
the question of can we uh, end up at a sort of small-scale eco-commune space is one that uh, I don't think we can know the answer to unless we end up in that situation. I think that's sort of, uh, to kind of wrap this up, is sort of the crux of accelerationism, is that like any uh, sort of utopian movement, what that actually looks like is so hard to envision without actually being there. Um, it's part of the, the problem with with Marxism to begin with is that how do you know, right? What makes you so sure of this thing? How do you know that this is what it'll look like when the system collapses? How do you, who told you this? Where do you get, where do you get this from? And it is a very difficult calculation, one that I have a great reticence towards to be willing, let alone excited to risk that level of destruction and collapse for an uncertainty of what comes next. Maybe that's inevitable. I, I think most of the accelerationists we've discussed would consider it so. But, I mean, it, the crux of accelerationism is get rid of the status quo as quickly as possible. And I, I'm not sure it's impossible to know if what comes next will be better or worse than the status quo. Well said. Um, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for sticking with us. Um, up next, we'll be talking about... What will we be talking about up next? <laughs> when, next week, next episode, we'll be talking about uh, post-liberalism and uh, sort of yeah, post-liberalism. Uh, not quite uh, accelerationist collapse into a new society, but more of an evolution out of the status quo. So, hope you'll stick around with us for next week, uh, next episode, and enjoy. Cool.